Hello, I'm Sean Finnegan, and you are listening to Restitutio, a podcast to get you thinking about biblical and historical Christianity, to inspire you to follow Christ, and to convict you to lead a consecrated life. Last time we looked at kingdom prophecies in Isaiah. Today, we'll examine Amos, Micah, Zephaniah, Zechariah, Ezekiel, and Daniel to continue developing a biblical picture of the age to come. This is Lecture 4 of the Kingdom of God class, originally taught at the Atlanta Bible College. To take this class for credit, please contact ABC so you can do the work necessary for a grade. Here now is Podcast 87, Kingdom in the Prophets. This is lecture number four, The Kingdom in the Prophets. We've already looked at the idea of restoration based on how the Bible begins and how it ends. And we looked at kingdom prophecies in Isaiah. And as you recall, Isaiah was chock full of kingdom prophecies, which is why I picked that book to really zoom in and consider what was there. And so I want to look at some of these, some of these other prophets. These prophets that we're looking at now are sometimes ignored. Daniel's part of the big show, you know, because people love Daniel for the kingdom, especially. But Amos, Micah, Zephaniah, Zechariah, um, they, they don't, they don't, you don't hear much about them. <laughs> and they're really great. So I thought we'd go there. And basically the point of looking at all these kingdom prophecies from... Isaiah and from these other prophets, and then we're going to look at the New Testament in the next lecture, is so that you have a grounding, a foundation, that you are thoroughly familiar with what the Bible says about the kingdom. Because once we get to the next stage and we start talking about people that were questioning the kingdom and some issues related to that, you already have to have this foundation in place or else you're not going to see the problem that these people bring up. So this is going to be an edifying time together, I think. <laughs> Let's take a look at Amos 9 together. I have, I have seven of these up on the board here, and we're just going to go through them one at a time. So the first one is Amos chapter 9, verse 11. And in that one we read, In that day I will raise up the booth of David that is fallen, and repair its breaches, and raise up its ruins, and rebuild it as the days of old that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations who are called by my name, declares the Lord who does this. This prophecy starts off by talking about a restoration of David's throne. Then it goes on, verse 13, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes him who sows the seed. The mountains shall drip sweet wine and all the hills shall flow with it. What does it mean for the plowman to overtake the reaper? No, we're not talking death in the yeah, uh, I, I, grim reaper sense here. <laughs> if you're out there reaping the crops, harvesting the crops, and the, and the plowman comes up behind you and he's like, excuse me. There's so much abundance. Why are you still, why are you still harvesting all the way around to planting season? It's just growing right? That's a long harvest. Usually the harvest is this exciting time where you bring in all the fruit, but it's relatively short-lived. <laughs> this harvest is going all the way through 
at least over here, what we uh, we would call like the winter, you know, they're, they're, they're obviously they still have winter over there, but their seasons are a little different based on the rain and that sort of thing. But um, there's a season when stuff doesn't grow and then uh, planting season and then a harvest. In this case, it says the plowman overtakes the reaper and then the treader of grapes, him who sows the seed. So the person who's treading the grapes is making the grapes into grape juice and they're, they're treading those grapes and they're like, hey, uh, we, we need to keep treading these grapes and the guy's trying to plant the seeds. And so this is a, a picture, it's a vision of a world of prolific agricultural abundance. This is gonna come up later in this class. That's the vision that Amos sees. Now, Isaiah had seen that too, right? Isaiah had seen the deserts blossoming. You remember that? And uh, yet this is even more vivid in the sense that it's talking about actual crops that are, are coming in. And I don't know if this is literal or metaphorical, but the communication is clear. Prolific agricultural abundance. Verse 14, I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel. They shall build the ruined cities and inhabit them. We saw that in Isaiah 61. They shall plant vineyards and drink their wine. They shall make gardens and eat their fruit. I will plant them on their land, and they shall never again be uprooted out of the land that I have given them, says the Lord your God. So here, go ahead and flip over to Micah. Here we're looking at how they're planting. No one's messing with them at the time of Amos. The, the problems you would face are if it doesn't rain on time, if there's some sort of problem with the crops where they don't grow or some sort of blight or infection comes in, right, and, and damages the crops. And then the other thing that happened all the time was political instability where you have a nation that attacks. So if the Philistines attack, all the farmers who are out there taking care of the land now have to go fight the Philistines, right? And so the picture here is one of a time of peace and prosperity. I think it's cool how it talks about the abundance of things planted that are growing quickly. And then in verse 15, it says, it's just talking about God planting the people. Yeah. Yeah, that is cool. God's going to plant the people in their land. Micah 4 verse 6 says, In that day, declares the Lord, I will assemble the lame and gather those who have been driven away and those whom I have afflicted. And the lame I will make the remnant and those who were cast off a strong nation. And the Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion from this time forth and forevermore. And you, O tower of the flock, hill of the daughter of Zion, to you shall it come, the former dominion shall come, kingship for the daughter of Jerusalem. This, this is probably one of my favorite. I know I say that a lot, but uh, it's just so beautiful. Micah 4 is very similar to what we read in Isaiah, but I, I picked the part out of Micah 4 that's different than Isaiah so that you can see the difference here. And this talks about God gathering the lame and the outcast and how God is going to bring those people to Mount Zion, right? And so what is Mount Zion other than the capital, right? The center of where God's presence is. If you're lame, if you're injured, if, if you struggle, uh, if you're an outcast, then God's going to have you closest to him. I love that. <laughs> I think that's just so, 
so beautiful. It, uh, really, it really warms my heart. Make a little note here. Under Amos, we could say abundance, right? Or agricultural abundance. Under Micah, we have the lame and the outcast brought near to God. I have a nephew. This is my nephew, Jeremiah. Nice young boy there. Jeremiah was born with a lot of difficulties and disabilities. He had a cleft lip, a cleft palate. Uh, he has low tone. His mind doesn't work the way ours works. And he, he can't walk on his own. He, he has to use braces to walk. He can't talk at all. Can't do a lot of things. And the idea that God is going to heal my nephew, you know, and that not just heal him, but give him a position of honor in the age to come. I mean, that really blesses me. It really, it really warms my heart because who else is there to set things straight in the end? Who else is there to, to right all the wrongs? And, you know, somebody that has been, so to speak, dealt a genetic deck that disables him or her, who's going to make that right? Well, God's going to make that right, and He has plans to make that right. And people who are outcasted for, for whatever reason, they're going to be made right as well when God heals the world. Look at Zephaniah chapter 3. This is a bit longer. I wrote down chapter 3, verses 8 through 20. And, and that's because it's really good. Okay, so get ready for that. Therefore, wait for me, declares the Lord, for the day when I rise up to seize the prey, for my decision to gather nations, to assemble kingdoms, to pour upon them my indignation, all my burning anger, for in the fire of my jealousy, all the earth shall be consumed. Not necessarily a happy start, is it? <laughs> and that's because this is an aspect of the kingdom I have not mentioned to you at all up until now, but the kingdom is not, well, what's the phrase I used previously? It's everything wrong with the world made right. Right? That's the Victor Gluckin phrase for the kingdom of God. I love it. It's great. Everything wrong with the world made right. Part of what's wrong with the world is wickedness and sin and people who are doing evil things. Right? Wouldn't you say that's part of the problem with the world that needs to be made right? So as a result of that, of human rebellion and wickedness, the kingdom coin has two sides. On one side, you have restoration, and that's what we looked at. That's the, that's the happy side. That's the heads. Okay, then you have tails, and that's this judgment aspect of the kingdom. Many of the majestic kingdom restoration passages we've been looking at come after macabre judgment prophecies, where it talks about how God is full of wrath and he's carrying out his judgment on the world. Now, I have not been focusing on those because they're a little depressing, but you need to know that they're there. And I mean, you look at what we just read here. It says that God is going to gather the nations. There's going to be a, an assembly and he's going to pour out his indignation. That is no joke. That is serious. And all his burning anger. And so the idea is that God does not act every time somebody offends him or does something to anger him. God stores it up. In the end, that gets poured out. Oftentimes, the prophets talk about it in terms of a cup full of God's wrath, and he pours out the cup on those who deserve the wrath. So in the fire of his jealousy, all the earth shall be consumed. So God, God is going to judge the world of his wickedness. 
Think of an old Wild West village where outlaws have taken over, right? Tiny little village with a saloon and pistols and rifles and cowboy hats. This is going to be a lot for you, Anna, I know, but just, to, just imagine this, the, this scenario here. And the people, since the outlaws have taken over, the people live in constant fear. And the, the business owners have to pay for protection. And uh, protection from what? The people that are <laughs> going to rob you otherwise, and they're offering you the protection from themselves. <laughs> right, exactly. And so the best news that such a village in the Wild West can hear is that there's a new sheriff coming to town. Right? And that new sheriff, and that, that new sheriff, when he comes to town and he's got his cowboy hat on and he comes in on his horse and he's, he's ready to set everything right in the town. Now, that news that there's a new sheriff coming to town is at the same time good news and bad news. It's good news for those who are living righteously, who are suffering, who are victimized by the regime. And it's really bad news for those that are ripping people off and the outlaws and they are going to face the judgment of this new sheriff especially if he's any good that's what the kingdom is it's 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 one event but it has multiple results which is why jesus says if you think about it jesus says in matthew 24 29 he says that then you will see the sign of the son of man coming in the clouds of heaven and all the tribes of the earth will mourn why is everyone sad to see the Son of Man coming in the clouds? It's because they don't want him to come. Because when Jesus comes, it's judgment. He's the new sheriff, <laughs> right? Um, but his people are rejoicing, right? And so that both are parts of it. So we want to be part of his people. We want to repent and um, you know, get right with God and receive his forgiveness so that we can be rejoicing on that day, right? Don't you want to rejoice on the day of the kingdom? The parable uh, in the New Testament, I think it's in Matthew, where the king goes away to receive his kingdom. When he comes back, the ones who try to fight against him, he hasn't brought before him and slaughtered in his presence. Yeah, that's what it says. <laughs> For the kingdom to be paradise, God must deal with the oppressors. If he lets them into the kingdom and they're still oppressing, we've just got the same old world again. It's just people live a long time, right? And instead of dying... Now we're resurrected, but we're still dealing with all the same issues as before. So verse 8 was judgment, wrath, and so on, right? And then at verse 9, you see where it says, For that time I will change the speech. You guys there? I will give to the people purified lips. Right. A pure, okay. A purified lips or a pure speech that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord or name of Yahweh and serve him with one accord. Have you ever really wanted to talk to somebody and they spoke a different language? Has that ever happened to you? say in Africa. I remember when I was in Africa and you're, you're surrounded by these people and you probably by now you, your chiche was a lot better than mine, <laughs> Rebecca. <laughs> but uh, you just have no idea what they're saying and, and you know you want to say something and it's just it's impenetrable, right? You ever feel that way, Anna? Where it's hard to understand uh, yeah. the language? Yeah, I'm sure you do. So how do, how do we get multiple languages in the first place? Well, it's the Tower of Babel, right? This moment of the Tower of Babel, God confuses the languages. You remember that in Genesis? And so now what we're reading about is the restoration of language, right? The, that the Tower of Babel gets undone so that people can all 
approach God and call out to God with a pure speech, with pure lips, and that they can be at one accord, be at harmony with one another. And then it goes on, verse 10, from beyond the rivers of Cush, my worshipers, the daughter of my dispersed ones, shall bring my offering. On that day you shall not be put to shame because of the deeds by which you have rebelled against me. For then I will remove from your midst your proudly exultant ones, and you shall no longer be haughty in my holy mountain. I will leave in your midst a people humble and lowly. They shall seek refuge in the name of the Lord. Those who are left in Israel, they shall do no injustice, right? And speak no lies, nor shall there be found in the mouth, their mouth a deceitful tongue, for they shall graze and lie down and none shall make them afraid. People ripping each other off, people treating each other badly accounts for most of the evil we face in our world, right? People lie to each other, they deceive one, each other, one another, but in that day, there's no more injustice. There's no more lies, right? It says they will speak no lies. There will be found no deceitful tongue. I tell you, I went to buy a pair of glasses. I wear contacts, but I, I went to buy a pair of glasses recently. And I went to this store and it had a nice big sign that said, two pairs of glasses for $69.99. And I said to myself, Man, if I could just get one for $69.99, I would be happy. And wouldn't you know it, $300 later, I had one pair of glasses. And it wasn't because I was ostentatious. It was because the sign was a lie. It doesn't cover the lenses. <laughs> right? So uh, that's typical. And, and I wasn't even that angry, right? I, I was just like, yeah, I know it's not really going to be that, right? And, and, we, and that's the way our, our whole culture works, right? You go in the store and it's like, oh, $9.99. You walk out and somehow it was $12. And you're like, what happened here? Oh, you didn't have the coupon. Oh, you're not part of our club. Oh, there's tax. Oh, this, that, and the other. And there's always another layer that you don't expect. Yeah. A company with health taxes included in price. Ah. And when I came here, I was like, ah, oh, so... We feel this way too. And we've always been here. <laughs> I still feel that way. It's just frustrating. Yeah, so actually, if you walked in a store and it said a price, that's actually what you would pay? Yeah. That would blow my mind. I, I don't even know what I would do. I'd rather things be more expensive and have the tax included. It just makes it easier to add in your head. Yeah. Well, that's part of the trick, is you think it's, you think it's going to be less, so then you buy more, but then you're already at the cash register. It's like, well, what are you going to do now? You don't want to be that guy, right? Or that girl that's just, oh, excuse me, I got to put this back or, you know, hold up the whole line. So you, they know what they're doing. So, but anyhow, no more deceit, no more lies, no more injustice in the kingdom age. Verse 14, sing aloud, O daughter of Zion, shout, O Israel, rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, Yahweh, is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. Isn't that gorgeous? In our world, it's full of chaos, full of reasons for fear. In that day, you shall never again fear evil. I was thinking too where it says in verse 15 there, the King of Israel, Yahweh, is in your midst. That reminds me of Eden where God was there with him. And it reminds me of the book of Revelation where it says God is going to tabernacle with us and he, we're going to see his face and his name is going to be in our foreheads, whatever that means. Uh, 
This is a beautiful picture of that. Verse 16, On that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear not, O Zion, let not your hands grow weak. The Lord your God, Yahweh your God, is in your midst, in case we didn't hear it in verse 15. A mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing, is what my translation says. Uh, some translations say shouting there, shouts of joy. I think singing is way cooler. <laughs> Imagine that God is singing or even shouting for joy over his people. Normally we sing to God. Here he's singing over us. This is pretty cool. This is a whole other aspect of the kingdom where we ask not, how will the kingdom be great for us, but how will we be great for the kingdom? <laughs> to use a JFKism. <laughs> how will we be great for God's kingdom? How will God enjoy this age? I mean, it is for us and it is about us, but it's also about God. It actually, first and foremost, is about God. It's what God always wanted for the world was to have a time of peace and, and harmony where people could rejoice in him and that he could bless his people and that his people would, they would be his people and he would be their God. And here you see God rejoicing. Yeah. Verse... 18, I will gather those of you who mourn for the festival so that you will no longer suffer reproach. There's that no longer getting insulted. Behold, at that time, I will deal with all your oppressors. Hello. And I will save the lame and gather the outcasts, and I will change their shame into praise and renown in all the earth. Zephaniah 3 preaches, right? This needs to be preached. So people need to be preaching this. I mean, this is good, right? At that time, I will bring you in at the time when I gather you together, for I will make you renowned and praised among all the peoples of the earth when I restore your fortunes before your eyes, says the Lord. Once again, I so love how God will change the shame of the lame and the outcast into praise. Let's go over to Zechariah chapter 14. So we're making some progress. We're on Zechariah here, number four of seven. I'm not going to spend too much time. There are actually a couple of kingdom prophecies in Zechariah. I'm, by the way, I, sh I should have mentioned this. I'm not doing an exhaustive study on the kingdom with you. I'm, I'm picking selections. I think in Isaiah, I probably did pick them all. But in, in, in the rest of the Bible, I, there's no way to do it all. I mean, there is, but we would just be reading verse after verse the whole time. And uh, that might be nice, but you also might uh, check out on me. So anyhow, verse 5, uh, the second half there, where it says, Then the Lord... My God will come, and all the holy ones with him. On that day there shall be no light, cold, or frost, and there shall be a unique day, which is known to the Lord, neither day nor night, but at evening time there shall be light. And so this is talking about cosmic signs. And you find this a lot of times, cosmic signs accompanying descriptions of the judgment that comes before the kingdom, especially in Joel and Isaiah where it says, a lot of times it'll say the stars are falling from the sky, or it'll say at nighttime it'll be light, right? And whatever's going on there, whether you want to take, I mean, obviously you can't take it literally in the sense that an actual star hits the earth, right? But we even use that terminology today, a shooting star. This is a meteor, it's not an actual star, we know that. And yet we still use the term shooting star because it looks like a star that's shooting, <laughs> right, through the air. This is part of the picture, too, that, they, uh, or that we see here in Zechariah. Verse 8, On that day living waters shall flow out of Jerusalem, half of them to the eastern sea and half of them to the western sea. It shall continue in summer as in winter. If you're going to have, to take a look at that again, rivers flowing out of Jerusalem 
to east and to that would take some serious geographical reconfiguration <laughs> because that's not how it that's not how it works today i mean there is a spring that feeds jerusalem and there are waters flowing into jerusalem but i don't think there are waters flowing out of jerusalem i mean where where would the water come from so uh, this is going to take some serious, you know, reshaping. Uh, verse 9, And the Lord will be king over all the earth. Isn't that beautiful? Yahweh will be king over all the earth. And that day Yahweh will be one and his name one. In our age, Yahweh has many competitors, right? In that day, he will be king over all the earth. His name will be one. All the other competing gods will cease, right? This says, can anybody read the, that word there? Yeah, Shema Yisrael, right? You remember that? Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, right? And so finally that confession or that creed of God's people will become reality on earth, that God will be one. That's what it says here. On that day, the Lord will be one in his name, one. Uh, the whole land, verse 10, shall be turned into a plain from Geba to Rimmon, south of Jerusalem. But Jerusalem shall remain aloft on its site from the gate of Benjamin to the place of the former gate to the corner gate from the tower of Hananiel to the king's wine presses. And it shall be inhabited. For there shall never again be a decree of utter destruction. Jerusalem shall dwell in security. So God plans to change the landscape, right? You see that? He's talking about this river. He talks about how there's going to be a plain instead of you know, it's a mountainous area right around the city of Jerusalem. You know, there's a valley on either side. Zechariah tells us about how God's going to change the landscape, but it also talks about how his name is going to be one and how people are going to recognize that he is one. Let's go over to Ezekiel 37. Ezekiel has a really fascinating prophecy. God asks Ezekiel, God says, Son of man, can these bones live, right? Ezekiel sees this valley full of dry bones and it's really weird and visionary experience. And Ezekiel gives one of the smartest answers in the whole Bible, right? He says, oh Lord, Yahweh, you know. <laughs> so God says, Ezekiel, can these bones live? Ezekiel says, you know, right? That's his answer. And so God says, prophesy, over the bones sign. He starts prophesying. Stuff starts happening in this vision. You know, bones start rattling around and joining together and the flesh comes on them and then he prophesies to the wind and then they start breathing. They, they all stand up, this vast army. Now there are three theories that I'm aware of about this vision. One is that it refers to the return from exile. Okay? And that's a pretty typical take on it that there will be a return from exile one day, and this whole vision is not to be taken literally, that it's a metaphor for that. A uh, second interpretation is that it refers to the establishment of Israel in the 20th century. And if you go to Israel, this is one of the prophecies they will, they will look to as having been fulfilled, that they were like these dry bones as a nation, and they were like, hey, we're, we're lost, we're never coming back, and then God brought them back to the land, which is actually a return from exile as well, if you think about it. <laughs> the first exile being from, you know, the year 586 or so BC, and the second exile being from, you know, the Roman times up until 
the 20th century. A third view of this vision of dry bones is that it refers to the kingdom yet to come. Uh, one commentator, Daniel Block, points out that the rabbinic commentaries frequently interpreted this passage as a prophecy of eschatological resurrection in the Messianic age. And I'm inclined to agree with this last view because of what it says in verse 12 there. It says, and this is not the vision, this is the interpretation of the vision. Because if you could see anything in a vision, you shouldn't take it literally, right? It's just a vision. The vision communicates a truth that you need to know, right? Same thing with parables. Don't take the parables literally. Get the point that they're trying to communicate, right? Uh, otherwise, you can run into problems. Now, here the interpretation is, Behold, I will open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people, and I will bring you into the land of Israel. And if you think about it, it's really not that much different than the exile interpretation. I mean, what's the ultimate exile? Dying, right? You're exiled from life. You're exiled from everything. And so if God opens the graves and brings them back to the land, that would be a return as well. God plans to bring his people back to life so they can enter their land and enjoy a right relationship with him forever. This is not an individual judgment. You notice it in, it's a valley of dry bones. It's not of one person, right? It's a whole collection of people in the vision. So we're talking about corporate resurrection. We're not talking about individual resurrection. And that's also something we see in... The New Testament. I just look at a couple of verses with you ever so briefly here. This is John 5:28, which says, Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice. Isn't that interesting? And it says, All who are in their tombs. You see that? That's really significant. All who are in their tombs. It's not talking about one person who is in their tombs. Now, all can mean of a certain group, or it could be all people who've ever lived, right? And I, I'm not stressed about that. My point is that it's corporate, right? It's not, it's not an individual situation. Look at uh, says John 5, 28, and verse 29. They will come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Chapter 6, so I, actually that all probably is, everyone. Uh, chapter 6, verse 39, once again, and this is the will of him who sent me that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. So resurrection is corporate from John 5, 28. We see that he raises up all. And then it's also something that happens on the last day. Okay. The, the competing interpretation is that resurrection is individual and it happens the moment you die. And so that's not, that's not the way it works right? You don't get resurrected into a spiritual body the moment you die. That's, that's not biblical. The biblical teaching is that it happens to all and it happens on the last day. Verse 40, for this is the will of my Father that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life and I will raise Him up on what? The last, the last day. Thank you. Verse 44, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on what? The last day. Verse 54, whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood, ew, has eternal life, and I will raise him up on what? Come on, Madison. Last day. All right, there it is. <laughs> so what we see is that when Jesus talks about resurrection, when we see resurrection in the Old Testament, it's talked about as a corporate event that happens to everyone on the last day, or at least 
a group of people, right? But you don't ever see an individual resurrection, which is why when Jesus got raised from the dead, it was so shocking to them because <laughs> they're expecting the resurrection to happen at the end. Um, and so when Jesus does it, it's like, whoa, what's, what, what's going on here? <laughs> All right, so are you still in Ezekiel? All right, uh, look at verse 23. They shall not defile themselves anymore with their idols and their detestable things or with any of their transgressions, but I will save them from all the backslidings in which they have sinned, and I will cleanse them, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God. That's one of the most beautiful expressions God uses throughout the Bible, but it's especially heavy in Ezekiel, where he says it over and over. They will be my people, and I will be their God. They will be my people, I will be their God. It's like God's dream. It's what he wants out of the universe, is to have a people who will be his people, and he will be their God. And so God is going to cleanse us. Did you see that, how it talked about verse 23, they will no longer defile themselves uh, with idols or with any of their transgressions. So God is going to cleanse us, and we can be his people, and he will be our God. Verse 24, once again, there's the Davidic covenant. My servant David shall be king over them, and they shall have one shepherd. They shall walk in my rules and be careful to obey my statutes. And they shall dwell in the land that I gave to my servant Jacob, where your fathers lived. They and their children and their children's children shall dwell there forever. And David, my servant, shall be their prince forever. I will make a covenant of peace with them. It shall be an everlasting covenant with them. And I will set them in their land and multiply them and will set my sanctuary in their midst forevermore. Notice again that it's everlasting. It, there's sort of an emphasis on this. It's an everlasting covenant. He's going to set them in their land, multiply them. His sanctuary is in their midst forevermore. Verse 27, my dwelling place shall be with them. Once again, God on the earth with his people. I just love that. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Then the nations will know that I am Yahweh who sanctifies Israel when my sanctuary is in their midst forevermore. I will be their God, and they will be my people. This is what the kingdom is all about. It's the age when God finally gets his people, and the people finally gets their God in this really amazing way that we can't quite experience today. We get glimpses of it today. But then sin intrudes into the picture, or injustice, or some other issue takes us out. This is the phrase that Ezekiel uses to describe God's dream for his people. You, I will be their God, and they will be my people. I mean, it's just like, you're in the kingdom, you can, you can li you, you're resurrected, you can live forever and everything else, but you don't have a right relationship with God. You know, that would just be weird. You would want to be in fellowship with God. All right, let's, let's flip over to Daniel. Daniel's where we're going to uh, wind up here. We have two prophecies in Daniel to consider. The first is the statue. The second is the beasts. And so the statue one begins in chapter 2, verse 31, where Nebuchadnezzar, the king, has this vision. And don't, don't you love Nebuchadnezzar? Because he, he says he doesn't want to even tell people what the dream was because he knows they're just going to make up some interpretation. <laughs> It's so unreasonable, but it's, it's so funny, too. He's like, I know you guys, you're all shysters. And he, and he actually sends out the order to kill all the astrologers and the, and the wise men. He's like, I'm done with you guys. And then it was when Daniel finds out about the order that he interferes with it, and he says, oh, look, um, 
let me pray and God will give us this, this dream and this interpretation. Well, anyhow, in verse 20, or sorry, verse 31, we read, You saw, O king, and behold, a great image. This image, mighty and of exceeding brightness, stood before you, and its appearance was frightening. The head of this image was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its middle and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. And you looked, and a stone was cut out by no human hand, and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold all together were broken in pieces and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors, and the wind carried them away so that no trace, not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. Dale went on to explain each of the parts of this, and we're not going to get into all the details, and there, there are several competing theories on this anyhow, and I'm not really sure which one's right. So let's skip to verse 43. My point here is to look at the, not the statue itself, but the stone that hit the statue, which becomes a great mountain that fills the earth. Verse 43 as you saw the iron mixed with soft clay, so they will mix with one another in marriage, but they will not hold together, just as iron does not mix with clay. Verse 44, and in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom. That is a key phrase. That is a key phrase. The God of heaven will set up a kingdom. And I say that's a key phrase because in Matthew, we come across this expression, kingdom of heaven. Right? Did you know that that only occurs in Matthew? And so why, why is Matthew use kingdom of heaven? One of the theories that people have is that he's pulling on Daniel 2.44 where it says the God of heaven will set up a kingdom. And so it's the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven, whichever way you want to look at it. But let's, let's go on here. In those days, God of heaven will set up a kingdom and it shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end and it shall stand forever. Just as you saw the stone was cut out of the mountain by no human hand and that it broke the pieces, the iron, the bronze, the clay, and the silver, and the gold, a great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. This dream is certain and its interpretation sure. So Daniel 2.44 is a major kingdom of God verse. One of the biggest ones in the whole Bible. You know what's interesting too? I don't know if you notice this, but all of the kingdom prophecies we've looked at together from the book of Isaiah or these other books, None of them use the word kingdom. If you look up the phrase kingdom of God, it does not occur in the Old Testament. That's kind of weird, right? Well, how have we just been... Look, I'll, I'll prove it to you. Kingdom of God. First usage. Well, you probably can't see it, so you have to trust me. Matthew 6.33. First usage in the Bible. Right? So, in Daniel, obviously, it uses the term kingdom... But in the prophets, how do they talk about it? They say, well, in the last days, this will come to pass, or this is what God is going to do. So they don't use the term kingdom, but that doesn't mean they're not talking about the kingdom. I think it's important to keep that straight in our heads. So verse 44, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom. Where does he set up the kingdom? Yeah, it seems, it seems like it's on earth because the uh, verse 44 is an interpretation of verse, uh, what was it, 30-something? Uh, 35, where it says, The stone struck the image and became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. Right. So if you realize that the, in the vision, 
the stone becomes a great mountain that fills the whole earth. And the interpretation of that is, hey, this is actually talking not about a stone or a mountain. It's talking about a kingdom that's going to fill the whole earth, right? And so in verse 44, God sets up a kingdom and this kingdom is indestructible and it takes out all the other kingdoms that are on the earth or on the world. It'll bring them to an end, but it will stand forever. Where does God set up the kingdom? He sets it atop all the other nations, all the other kingdoms, all the other empires that might be there or might have been there in the past. This kingdom is not, once again, I, I know I say this a lot, but it doesn't get old. This kingdom is not for a thousand years. It says it's forever, right? It says it's forever. I mean, I believe in the thousand year part of it, but I'm just saying the kingdom itself lasts forever and it will destroy all others. It's global. It's not just Israel. Some of the prophecy we looked at was specifically focused on just like, think of Isaiah 60, it just focused on Jerusalem. The whole, the whole chapter, Isaiah 60, is just focused on Jerusalem, the city of Zion. And then you look at some of these other prophecies and it's just focused on Israel. Like in Ezekiel 37, it was just focused on Israel, right? We learn from Daniel that this kingdom is not going to stay within the bounds of historic Israel. It's going to itself expand and God is going to reign over the nations. It's going to be over the whole world. I mean, that's a big development in understanding the kingdom, wouldn't you say? <laughs> I mean, what if the kingdom is just like Israel forever and the rest of the world is just like in chaos? <laughs> that would be a totally different vision of the future, wouldn't it? Uh, look at Daniel chapter 7, verse 13. Of course, Daniel 7, you have these four beasts. They're totally weird, right? You got the one like a lion with eagle's wings. Daniel sees and he's like, wow, this is really weird. And the wings are plucked and it's lifted from the earth and a man's heart is given to it. Whatever that means, right? And then he sees a beast like a bear coming out of the water raised up on its side. It has three ribs in its mouth. I think I might have had three ribs in my mouth yesterday when I went out to lunch with Jack. But uh, anyhow, he was told to arise and devour much flesh. And then he sees a beast like a leopard with four wings and it had four heads and it was given dominion. And then last of all, he sees this nasty beast, a terrifying beast. Uh, it has iron teeth and brass nails and ten horns and it has some little horn that comes up, right? And it uproots three of the horns. I mean, it's just like a cool sci-fi freaky vision. I'm less, once again, interested in all the details and I just want to go for the punchline here. And that's in, well, in verse nine, we get, we get the Ancient of Days, right? That's where God is sitting on his throne. Yeah? I love that term. Yeah, it's a great term. Yeah. So God's sitting on his throne and there's 10,000 times 10,000 of angelic beings there attending to him. And it's a judgment scene, which is why he's sitting on a throne. And, you know, the, the scene just speaks about judgment. And then in verse uh, 11 and 12, judgment is passed. But then in verse 13, the Son of Man is presented before the Ancient of Days. So let's look at verse 13. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. So you get the, you get the image. It's pretty clear, right? You have the ancient of days. He's sitting on a throne, 
fires coming out of the throne. There are all these thousands of angels around him. And the way it works when you have a king on the throne is you don't just go in, right? You have to be summoned. And then there are officials that bring you to the presence of the monarch, right? It works like that in the United States too with the president, right? You don't just, you don't just ring the doorbell on the White House. Actually, I don't even know if the White House has a doorbell. <laughs> you can't just like go in and talk to the president. You have, you have to somehow find a reason for them to let you in. And then you don't just walk in and be like, oh, which way is the president? Uh, no, you, somebody's gonna usher you in. And then they're gonna announce you and they're gonna say, Anna's here to see the president. Okay, let, let her in. You know, I mean, it's a big, and that's just an, a human kingdom. What about God's kingdom, right? And his, his rule. Right? And so with God, the, the Son of Man gets presented before him. It's really a cool image there, isn't it? Uh, and then verse 14, to the Son of Man was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away in his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. This is probably the most significant text, Daniel 7:14, for understanding what Jesus thought about himself because he routinely referred to himself as the Son of Man, right? If Jesus is talking about himself, he will call himself the Son of Man. Jesus does not go around saying, thus says the Messiah. He does not do that. He does not go around saying, thus says the prophet of God. But he does go around saying, the Son of Man, this, and the Son of Man, that, right? Doesn't he? So why is Jesus calling himself the Son of Man all the time? It wasn't all that normal to do that. It was a fairly unusual thing to do. Well, we'll get to that later. But this prophecy is definitely behind it because this is the Son of Man prophecy. And you notice the three triplets there, right? In verse 14, you have dominion, glory, and a kingdom. That's the first triplet. And then the second triplet is that all peoples, nations, and languages... And then the third triplet is everlasting dominion, not pass away, never be destroyed, right? So it's saying the same thing three times, saying three things, but each of those three things, it's repeating three times. In other words, it's emphasizing it using the Hebrew idiom of repetition or Psalms parallelism, if you want to call it that. And what it's doing is establishing this is definitely 100% going to happen. This is, this is not a joke. This is serious. What is so serious? That there is a real kingdom that is going to rule over everyone, right? All peoples, all nations, all languages. That's emphasizing everyone. And then the last point is, it's not going away ever, right? It's forever. Emphasizing that point again. So these three sets of triplets are... I think really helpful to, to emphasize. The first one is about dominion, right? And then the second one is about the extent or the people that he reigns over. And then the, the last one is that it's forever, that he's gonna have dominion, and that dominion is gonna to extend to all people, and that it's going to last forever. Those are the three triplets in Daniel, chapter seven, verse 14. And then, Daniel asks for further clarification. We get to verse 17. These four great beasts are four kings who shall arise out of the earth, but the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, forever, and ever. <laughs> Don't you love that? It's like, 
Boom, as, as strong as you can say that. And so this is, that's a key part too, right? Because if it's just the son of man's kingdom, we're not there, right? But here it says the saints will inherit the kingdom. Once again, in verse 21, as I looked, his horn made war with the saints and prevailed over them until the ancient of days came and judgment was given for the saints of the most high. And the time came when the saints possessed the kingdom. And then lastly, verse 27, and 27 is, is another one of these major, major verses on the, on the kingdom. So we had Daniel 2.44, Daniel 7.14, and Daniel 7.27. Those would be like the three biggest ones in Daniel on this subject. And the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness. Did you see that? That's a triplet, right? Kingdom, dominion, and greatness is saying the same thing three times. Of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. His kingdom shall be an everlasting dominion, and all dominions shall serve and obey him. We're saying the same thing over and over to establish that this is a kingdom that lasts forever, and that it's over all dominions, over all peoples. This kingdom is not just for God. It's not just for the Son of Man, but it's for the saints as well, which is good news, right? Because saints are just super holy dead people. Right? Saints are Christians, those who have been sanctified, who have been cleansed and made to be saints. So the saints get the kingdom. That's good. That's an important point, right? Uh, on Dale 7.27, the saints get the kingdom. <laughs> God establishes his kingdom under the whole heaven. Everyone serves and obeys, and it's forever. Well, I hope you enjoyed that. Next week, we'll get into the New Testament and see what the New Testament teaches about the kingdom of God. But before I close out for today, I wanted to read out some of the comments that we've been receiving on restitudio.org. The first one comes from last week's episode, 86, The Kingdom in Isaiah. John Raftos writes, Hello, thank you so much for your presentations on the kingdom promises. I live in Australia. That's my... Uh, attempted an Australian accent there. I live in Australia, and I enjoy so much the scholarship that goes into the material presented, especially the insight gained by considering the background slash view the original writers or audience would have when listening or writing the scriptures. Keep up the good work. Your work is coming to the attention of more and more people, and I, for one, am recommending your work as often as I can. Well, thank you so much, John Raftos, for taking the time to write and for recommending Restitutio to others. It's funny, I just received this morning a little business card-sized handout that Jenny in Australia has put together for Restitutio to hand out to people. So hopefully... Our Australian audience will continue to grow. Hopefully you don't mind my Yankee accent too much, but thankfully the truth transcends language and accents and cultures. In another comment on podcast 83, questions about gay and lesbian Christians, Robert Stevenson writes, I have been involved with the ex-gay Christian movement for almost 34 years. In my 73 years, I have never been sexually attracted to women. I had a gay brother who passed away from complications of HIV in 1995 at the age of 43. And I also have seven cousins covering four generations who are gay or lesbian. So sorry to hear about your brother, Robert. 
He goes on, in the course of my ex-gay journey, I was involved first with Homosexual Anonymous. This was short-lived as I saw relationships form there as there was no real accountability. After leaving the group, I found out that the director, a single woman, became involved with another woman and came out as a lesbian. Then I joined an Exodus International Affiliated Ministry in Houston. I bought into the sexual orientation myth and sought to change my orientation. I went through all the programs, such as Desert Streams, Living Waters Course. Living Waters concentrates on spiritual warfare, generational sins, banishing demons, and etc. However, I found this counterproductive for these reasons. And then he quotes a number of scriptures. And then he concludes by saying, If a homosexual walks into your church, it is a good bet that the Holy Spirit is already working in their lives, and they already know the scriptures used to show homosexuality is a sin. Just love them and obey Jesus. I did not choose to have same-sex attractions. However, I did choose to live a celibate life in obedience to God's truth, as have more ex-gays and lesbians than you think, who have not outed themselves out of fear. Well, Robert... Thank you so much for your honesty and your candor and sharing uh, so much about your 34-year experience in wrestling with same-sex attraction and what you've seen along the way. As I said in this in this teaching on questions about gay and lesbian Christians that I did, I'm not same-sex attracted, so I have to base what I understand about this subject on the experiences of people like you. So it really helps a lot to hear from you. I also recommend Yar House, uh, Sam Albury, a number of these Christian scholars who and pastors who are doing good work on this subject and encouraging folks to stay true to Christ, regardless of what their sexual appetites might be or orientation and so on. So thanks so much for uh, writing in. One last comment I wanted to read out is from Brian, who commented on interview 20, How to Quit Pornography with Blake Courtright. He says, what a powerful interview. Thank you, Mr. Courtright, for being transparent and for sharing your experience. I'm thankful that I was able to get married at the young age of 20, yet I still struggled with pornography from time to time. I think that being part of a church environment where grace is being taught down your throat, and even if you sin, it doesn't matter because, well, we've got his grace I believe I've already expressed in previous comments on the Restitutio page how God has done a miraculous work in my life, placing within me a tremendous desire to know him and his son so much better. In regards to the issue of sexual temptation and struggle, when I was studying Isaiah a couple of years ago, I dug deep into 66.1, which says, Thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Where then is a house you could build for me? And where is a place that I may rest? In my studies... I pondered the idea of God's feet reaching down to the earth. I examined some rabbinic commentaries and struck this Talmudic passage. Whoever commits a sin secretly is considered as if he pushed away the feet of God's presence. That's Kiddushin 31a. I digested the concept that if I sin secretly, if I do a sin that I would be ashamed to do in public, it would be as if I'm pushing away God's feet his presence, I ended up with the mindset that when I would commit this type of secret alone sin, that it would be as if I'm denying the existence of God. Through God's Spirit, this verse and rabbinic commentary really struck me and helped me repent of my sin. Again, thanks for this awesome and transparent interview. 
Last of all, Miranda comments, this is the second podcast, which includes a warning of inappropriate content for children. The other was podcast 81, which was indeed inappropriate for children. We must remember that children have access to Christian websites. Perhaps then a Christian website is not the place for content that requires such a warning. Well, Miranda, I guess we have to disagree on this. Children are also, in increasing numbers, accessing pornography websites. And having an honest interview with someone who can help them understand the dangers of pornography, I think is indeed warranted. And I also don't think that children and practicing Christians are the same thing. And I'm not saying you think this, but I can tell you that when I went to see the Case for Christ movie, as the probably two Christian movies I saw before that as well, all the previews beforehand were for cartoons, because there is this ridiculous notion that if you're a Christian, then you just can't handle any sort of content whatsoever, and you, you should just watch cartoons and, and expose yourself to children's materials. And I think that's absolutely absurd. Children have limitations as far as how much ambiguity they can handle and what what sorts of material they can process. I'm very cognizant of that, having four children myself. I do limit what, what they're exposed to. But I, I think as far as Christians go, look, if you don't struggle with pornography, if this is not something that's in your life, then don't listen to that interview. If you're not interested in the trans subject that Jackie Hill Perry talked about in episode 81, that's not of interest, then, then don't listen to it. As far as putting out content goes, Restitutio puts out two episodes a week. There are some of you out there who are going to listen to every one of those episodes, and we love you, and we're so glad that you're so engaged. However, a lot of people are just going to listen to an episode here or an episode there if it catches their interest. You know, I recognize that's the nature of things, and I'm as far as content is inappropriate for children, I'm not planning on making a habit of posting all kinds of sexually explicit or controversial content on Rest Studio. But I do want to engage with issues as they arise. So this may happen again. I don't have anything immediately planned out right here, but if it offends you, then please skip that episode in the future. And hopefully it can help a lot of folks that are struggling with these issues. So as always, Miranda, thanks for writing in. And I do appreciate your feedback and your perspective. All right. So I'm really excited about what's coming out Sunday, which is my Restorationist Manifesto. I've got a special podcast for that. I'm hoping to have a video version of that completed as well. And and this is all from the conference I attended last weekend. So stay tuned for that on Sunday. If you'd like to write in and add your voice to the mix, head on over to restitudio.org and click on podcast. You can find the episode that you want to react to there and leave a comment. Thanks so much. And remember, the truth has nothing to fear.